Hello, welcome everybody to Mystery AI Hype Theater 3000, where we seek catharsis in this age of AI hype. We find the worst of it and pop it with the sharpest needles we can find. Along the way, we learn to always read the footnotes, and each time we think we've reached peak AI hype, the summit of Bullshit Mountain, we discover there's worse to come. I'm Emily M. Bender, a professor of linguistics at the University of Washington. And I'm Alex Hanna, Director of Research for the Distributed AI Research Institute. Today is episode 13, and we are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Hannah Zeeman of UC Berkeley to talk about AI hype and robotherapists. Hannah, can you introduce yourself? Hi, thank you so much, Alex and Emily. Um, it's an honor to be here. My name is Hannah Zeeman, and I teach at UC Berkeley. I'm also the author of a book called The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy. And I think that's why I'm here. That is so why you're here. We are so excited to have you. Um, before we start, though, I want to do a quick content note. Um, this is for our listeners, both live and on the recording. We are likely to hit some heavy topics today as we talk about people in crisis reaching out and then getting bad advice from automated systems or otherwise having their stuff get exploited by those systems. We aim to talk about all this with sensitivity, but we also understand that these topics can be difficult. So if suicidality, eating disorders, or mental health crises are sensitive topics for you, maybe this is the episode to sit out. Hannah, I know that you've got some thoughts about how those things work, content notes, and what we might refer people to and what not to do. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to add that on top of the topics being really difficult and really close to home for so many that one thing that will come up today, I assume, is that many of the most trusted landmark um, hotlines and alternatives for in-person therapy are also exactly the same groups that are deploying, um, if not chat GPT, other forms of automated systems, including geolocation and the datification on hotlines. And so we'll be talking about that. And perhaps at the end, we can return to how individuals can best think about approaching new scenes and sites of care. Excellent. So, you know, you can expect our usual reverence, but we're going to try to also be sensitive as we get to the sensitive topics. Um, so, as always, we've got a couple of artifacts to help us structure this discussion. Um, here, can a chatbot help people with eating disorders as well as another human? Um, this is the story of the National Eating Disorders Association. Um, this is the story from May 24th. The National Eating Disorders Association is shutting its telephone helpline down, firing its small staff and hundreds of volunteers. Instead, it's using a chatbot, and not because the bot is better. <laughs> All right. I, I do I do appreciate that introduction of you know what the what they were saying in this and and um you know there's lots of good things about this reporting from from NPR. Uh, I just uh, listened to it again. They're talking a bit about. Um, the work, the kind of labor and the effort that was going into um, into National Eating Disorders Association, um, how COVID, like many services in health, has been um, uh, exacerbated the crunch, um, and how workers um, began to unionize at this organization, um, and then. And then basically abruptly, um, you know, with that unionization, there was this clear, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, there was this clear retaliation and lo and behold, they replaced it with a chatbot named Tessa. You know, and uh, I think it's so yeah, funny, it just even contained within these first two sentences, this lead. I feel like the entire history of the suicide hotline and the crisis hotline and the whole history of automation for mental health care is like lurking just beneath the surface, including the attention to labor, which is so often under theorized and thought on the grounds of this kind of care is like right up at the front, right? It's firing its small staff, but also crucially, it's hundreds of volunteers. Mm -hmm. wow. and, and yet what an interesting sentence, firing volunteers. Like, is that how that works? <laughs> I kind of... We're not, you're not, you're not paying yeah. us. You're fired. <laughs> right. You know, I think you can, the, the making of them redundant is, is so fascinating, right? That crisis hotlines in their long history have almost always made use of volunteers. It's actually the use of paid staff. That's the newer mm. turn. And so that kind of turning the human volunteer into a team of fungible automata called Tessa 
always feminized, right? Yeah. I think right. is that that we can see as two really different ideas from mid-century about how we could batch process patients, the volunteer and peer-led care, like in the form of mm. AA, et cetera, or the bot. And these have been the kind of two ways to do it cheaply and or for free. The question is at what cost? Yeah. I love if you could go into it a little bit. Um, you brought up AA, Hannah, um, in talking about the division that it existed um, between kind of paid staff um, and 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 the structure of kind of sponsor groups and, and whatnot. But yeah, that's a history I don't know a lot about. I'd love if you could talk about it more. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm happy to just sort of give a kind of rundown. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's no accident that one place we're seeing a big, you know, whether this is not on the docket for today, but, you know, earlier this year, there's this huge kind of outpour uh, of uh, upset and dismay, as there should have been, when Coco, which is another um, help kind of group line, flipped out its volunteer for a chat GPT without telling users. And that was just as the kind of both hype panic cycle around chat GPT was really kicking off. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to see it again today, both we're going to talk about suicide hotlines and also, you know, uh, eating disorder advice and, and crisis hotlines that, you know, in mid-century, so the suicide hotline first appeared in the 1950s. Uh, first in England and then almost immediately in the UK, as a way of giving non-judgmental, non-psychiatric, and I'll add non-carceral advice, because I think that's really important to some stuff that's going to come up mm -hmm. maybe later in the session, to individuals in need. And crucially, mm -hmm. it was going to be free, but it was also going to make use of the media affordances <laughs> of the telephone, mm -hmm. which is to yeah. say that it would hold the volunteer helper at a distance from the caller so the caller could feel secure bodily in seeking advice. Why was this? Suicide was a felony, both in the U.S. and in most in most of the U.S. and in the U.K., so mm. attempted suicide was also a felony. Mm. And secondarily, mm. because lots of the reasons why people want to call crisis hotlines then as now are because of topics that might be otherwise taboo, right? There was no person in person that the caller could think to go speak to. So the free anonymous hotline was like this real genius innovation. Uh, and to turn to AA, it did have a history in the church, a kind of pastoral history. And so the use of the volunteer and the kind of intersection of psycho-religious care was, you know, AA was part of this tradition, but also kind of peer-to-peer -peer ministry. And so the volunteer mm. of the hotline is originally an anonymous peer. It's not someone who has authority over you. Mm. It's someone who would be, you know, your direct you know, um, congregant or something in the church, right. like AA, but now it's anonymous. And whereas right. AA is anonymous in groups, but in person, so you have first names, you have faces, the hotline goes one further. Mm -hmm. Now you're complete. The idea is you are completely protected. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing we'll see, or I, I argue elsewhere, and I will argue today is that in fact, the bot wants to masquerade as taking it even one further. Now it's not even a human. Now you can say anything. But in fact, it re and de-anonymizes all of the data of people yeah. in, in dire straits who need care. Yeah. This is such an important history to highlight. And thanks for thanks for focusing on it. And I I think the important things to highlight that I want to just emphasize is this kind of notion of peer, this notion of someone that can be a fellow congregate or uh, I guess in in AA or NA parlance, a sponsor, but the way that datification does reinscribe a hierarchical notion of that, and how this this stuff, and we'll see this on the National Suicide Hotline, hotline and Loris.ai, is that that then your data is by virtue of being uh, used to train other systems, no longer anonymous. Um, or de-anonymize in a way that we typically don't think about anonymization in which, you know, you're not necessarily outing somebody, um, but you are um, forcing their own testimony to testify against them to sort of discipline someone else. Um, and so that's, 
um, you know, like that's the the perversity of it for sure. Yeah, among them. All right, so I'm going to take us back to this article, which is a, a little bit yeah, different to totally. our usual artifacts because it's not dense with AI hype because it's NPR doing some pretty good reporting mm-hmm. here. But um, what we have are some examples of people who are calling the hotline. Um, and then we get to the point where the speakers identify the problem, which is, so this is, um, they're talking about how um, the hotlines became sort of overwhelmed during COVID because you had an uptick in need for them. Um, and uh, so someone named Wells says, the helpline is run by just six paid staffers, a couple supervisors, and they train and oversee up to 200 volunteers at any given time. The staff felt overwhelmed, undersupported, burned out. There was a ton of turnover, so the helpline staff voted to unionize. And Harper, who I guess is one of the helpline staff, says, so cliche, but like we did not have our oxygen masks on and we are putting on everyone else's oxygen mask. And it was just like becoming unsustainable. So here's the point where there's a serious problem, right? There's not enough access to this resource, which is you know people in need reaching out to the helpline and not being able to connect, people providing it, not having enough, you know, energy, time, self, you know, they, they were sort of overgiving of themselves. Um, and so this, the staff's approach was, okay, let's unionize and improve our working conditions. And uh, Nita, is that how we say it? Do we say Nita? Um, N-E-D-A? Nita, Nita. Yeah. I don't, I think it's whichever yeah. you want. <laughs> um, so, so Wells adds, um, uh Lauren Smolar is a VP at the nonprofit, and she says the increase in crisis line calls also meant more legal liability. So here's Lauren Smolar. Our volunteers are volunteers. They're not professionals. They don't have crisis training. And we really can't accept that kind of responsibility. We really need to get them to go to those services who are appropriate. So Hannah, I'm curious what you think about this sort of the this hotline, you know, at in 2023, after what, 70 some years of this kind of a setup saying, um, actually, volunteers aren't the right approach um, for maybe legal reasons. Yeah. yeah, so I think that that's one thing that is absolutely um, different from the 50s to now mm-hmm. is the kind of terrain and topography of the juridical, for sure. One thing that is really fascinating in my research was seeing, in fact, that long before it was something that precedes hype in this area is actually trying to make some speculative legal gestures. So, you know, California has the earliest U.S. Telemedicine Act in the early 90s, like before anyone's really doing telemedicine, but there's like a pretty fully fledged code of what you can do and can't. So one thing that is true is now there are different uh, legal pressures on hotlines. But when, when we talk about the police, and I, ho- I hope we do because I think it's an urgent topic, that's not exactly for legal reasons. There are there are other pressures at play there. So I can't I can't know what what this person had in mind. Um, but professional that volunteers do tend to have a great deal of training. Um, I've worked on a hotline in the Bay Area, uh, not a suicide hotline, but a rape crisis hotline. And I was in training for four months in person, hours and hours and hours a week and hours and hours and hours of practice before I was ever allowed on a hotline, including suicide crisis training. So I, I don't know about this particular hotline's internal policies, but it's not a blanket truth about hotlines. Volunteers often are really deeply equipped. It doesn't mean the work isn't extraordinarily difficult. It is. So yeah. I'd have to yeah. know more. And it just seems to me that from, from the perspective of both the, the client or the person in crisis making the call and the volunteer, that training has got to be critical, right? So you need to be able to be there to receive and and do your best to help the person. But also if you got thrown into that as a volunteer without the training, then just like how traumatic would that be to like not know, mm-hmm. not have any guidance on what to do? And it, yeah. Right. For, and for both parties, right? Both for the caller who is calling in in a moment of crisis and thinks they're reaching the right form of care and also for the person who cannot provide it. Yeah. I think what's funny, of course, is that it's not like this bot, Tessa, which we'll, we'll get to, I hope, <laughs> in its particular, really doesn't have any quote unquote training or any literal training in, in the ML version, right? It's it's completely a, a horrible misstep of replacement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's get yeah. to the bot. So sort of fast forward in the story here. The workers unionize, they have a meeting um, with the management and the management says, we're just letting you know that we're letting you go because we're transitioning um, to AI assisted technology around June 1st um, called TESSA. 
Um, and I do, I do want to say, I don't think the tra- this is in the transcript, but if you have a chance, definitely go ahead and listen to the leaked audio from the meeting because it's, it is, you know, what you'd expect to be. It's kind of a, a, a is it is is Craddock the the head of the organization? The board chair, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and it's it's just really, you know, the kind of dehumanizing kind of management speak that you'd expect, but really like we're winding down our operations, uh, you know, and we're going to replace um replace you all with Tessa effectively. Um and it's it's really um it's really gross and I encourage you to listen to it. <laughs> um, um and then but yeah em- Emily do you want to jump in like I, I think the discussion that comes from the creator of this chatbot Tessa uh is is pretty interesting which yeah. who is um Dr. Ellen Fitzsimmons Craft. Yeah, so I'm going to back up and just give us our, our reporter again. I think Wells is the reporter. Now, Nita says mm. that it can't discuss employee matters, and staff and volunteers say that they worry there's no way a chatbot is going to be able to give people the kind of human empathy that comes from a human. Yes, volunteers are right. Um, and the people who made Tessa agree. And then we have Ellen Fitzsimmons Craft. I do think that we wrote her to attempt to be empathetic, but it is not, again, a human. And I just want to be a linguist here for a moment and pay attention to the pronouns in this sentence. So we wrote mm-hmm. her to attempt to be empathetic, but it is not a human. And both of those are re- referring to Tessa. Um, yes. So that's interesting. Yeah. Like when Tessa is constructed as empathetic, um, the system mm-hmm. gets she, her pronouns. And when it is not, or when it's being minimized, it gets it pronouns. Uh, you know, Emily, I think that's such a crucial point because all almost every single bot in the sort of therapy wellness, quote unquote, space, a word I can't use with anything but irony, right, is <laughs> is always feminized. Mm-hmm. And you often see even in its own creators that kind of slip, mm-hmm. that kind of tell, if you would, that's mm-hmm. like really trying to make the user or the person buying the technology or the person learning about the technology do the anthropology anthropomorphization with you but on the other hand even they themselves cannot yeah. like not fully right so it's not the uncanny valley in terms of creepiness but in terms of quote-unquote empathy rating or something yeah 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 all right so reporter oh, go I, ahead alex well i wanted to give fitzsim and craft a little credit a little further mm-hmm. on because further on she does say it's not an open-ended tool you talk to and feel like you're just going to have access um, to kind of a listening ear, maybe like the helpline was, and then follows, it's really a tool in its current form, et cetera. But uh, Hannah, you're completely right. There's this slippage. I do want to, you know, criticize Wells, the the reporter here, where um, there's nearly exclusive uses of a she, her pronoun here, where Wells says, um, the reporter, Tessa is not chat GPT. She can't think for herself or go off the rails like that. Um, and then and again, the reporting saying that chat GPT can think for itself. Um, the reporter goes on, she's programmed with only a limited number of possible responses, and Fitzsimon Craft and her team have done small-scale studies showing that people who interact with Tessa actually do better than those who are just put on the wait list, which Seems like an interesting placebo. <laughs> You're doing a, a study. That's an interesting control, but right. yeah. And it's not like we're talking about waitlist or uh, interaction with the chatbot Tessa here. We're talking about interaction with volunteers versus interaction with chatbot. Yeah. Um, all right. You know, Coco tried to make a really similar point, if I may, about where you put the automation and what the automation is doing. But the mm. problem is the caller in the moment of crisis, let alone if you don't have a PhD in this stuff and it's not written about anywhere and it's never consented to, how are they supposed yeah, to know? Yeah. Right. And so I think like the idea of what the uses might be versus how they actually play out in their socio-technical crisis component is totally uh, um, a kind of red herring here. And I've just, you know, someone has done studies, presumably with carefully crafted, you know, selection of participants and IRB approval. Mm-hmm. I sure hope that person would be terrified of taking the step between those studies and yeah, let's just put this out there in the world. 
Like, yeah. yeah. So the cocoa yeah, thing, my understanding sure. of the cocoa story was that it wasn't um, callers interacting directly with um, the GPT system. And I think it was GPT-3, not chat GPT, um, but rather the peer um, volunteer there um, being offered GPT output to then edit or send, which is not really any better. And then there's this whole just nonsense about how the um, the guy whose business it was was saying, oh, no, people knew there was consent. And he was talking about the volunteer side knew it was going on consent and not the caller side. And just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, unfortunately, that's very common that when there's, quote unquote, innovation, again, in this space, what I often see and when we maybe when we get to talking about Laura's AI, we'll, we'll talk about this more in depth, but I often see in our contemporary moment, but also in the past historically, that there can be this big attempt to like automate mental health care and only data ethics say apply, but not mental health or psychiatric or psychological ethics. So there's a kind of choosing of the lower standard in this case to kind of front it. Like, so yeah, the volunteer, the volunteer knew because that's a person interacting directly with the system. Well, yeah. Right. What about the, the other side? Did you forget this is a mental health care service? And I think that's right. often what I see, because I think the answer is yes. The fact that it's mental health is only for capture rather than the entire point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even even the kind of bar for the data ethics is pretty. I mean, it's it's not even a, a higher standard of data ethics. It's saying, well, we aren't necessarily going to sell this and you're you're it's a very individual notion of privacy. You know, we're not, you know, you're not going to be de-anonymized, yeah. um, um, but it's your, your data is still going to be used to improve or train these systems in other ways. Yeah. All right. So I want to go back to this point that Alex was reading where the reporter Wells is, is using she pronouns and doing a bit of hypey stuff here. So Tessa is not chat GPT. She can't think for herself or go off the rails like that. Um, so uh, first of all, ChatGPT can't think for itself either. Tessa's an it, not a she. And also what a weird juxtaposition of, um, so thinking for oneself is going off the rails is a weird like equation, I think. Um, but in fact, let's fast forward to what actually happened. The chatbot Tessa absolutely goes off the rails. So this thing that supposedly <laughs> only had pre-programmed outputs that it could give ends up um, giving incredibly harmful responses to somebody who was interacting with it. I think somebody who had recovered or was in recovery from eating disorder. So they were relatively robust to this. Um, but so here, someone named Maxwell claimed that in the first message Tessa sent, the bot told her that eating disorder recovery and sustainable weight loss can coexist. Then it recommended that she should aim to lose one to two pounds per week. Tessa also suggested counting calories, regular weigh-ins, and measuring body fat with calipers. What the hell? Um, so here is Maxwell. Oh if I had accessed this chatbot when I was in the throes of my eating disorder, I would not have gotten help for my ED. If I had not gotten help, I would not still be alive today, Maxwell wrote on the social media site. Every single thing Tessa suggested were things that led to my eating disorder. Um, so I'll stop there for reactions. <laughs> I, I'm wondering, so I don't know enough about Tessa just to be in with the system. And is it, they say it's a, a chat, they describe it as a chatbot in the NPR article. Is it a, is it a large language model? So that I think not, that at least as, decided, as described in the NPR article, it couldn't have been, right? So, um, okay. but then I saw something and I'm sorry, I didn't get a chance to chase this down to a more reliable source, but I saw something suggesting that the company behind it had an AI upgrade. And so mm, it may have gotten mm -hmm, a large language mm -hmm. model added in between the work that the psychiatrist did and when um, Neda deployed it. Something has to have happened because I, I, don't, I don't think it's possible that the psychiatrist who did those studies had these kinds of pre-programmed responses in. Like that doesn't seem plausible to me. Right. Um, although Hannah, maybe you know right. more about the context than it is plausible that they could have been studying that. Um, I, I I don't know in this case, but what I, I mean, what it seems like is yes, right? Because to go from eating disorder support to weight loss measurement, you know, like uh, mm -hmm. LLM, it often it has like almost like this bad free associative logic, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, Alex, your cat, so cute. I know. And like this, you know, like where it's like, 
bodies, weight, weight, weight loss, because that's the internet unconscious, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so then you're put back into this really intense, horrible, like you go for help. And in fact, the bot is confirming this other component of your mind and psyche, right? Which has to do with, I mean, and let alone the measuring body fat with calipers thing really like made my heart stop because it feels so invasive and also like not even anything I've ever heard in any case, right? It feels like from many, many decades ago. And yet there it is surfacing in Tessa. Really horrible stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Arcane Sciences in the chat says all the incentives with LLMs and their development are so screwed up. And I think that's probably what's kind of getting at it. I mean, it might've been the case that, you know, this, there was the service and then there was this system that had been developed and then the developers freaked out and they're like, well, we're going to slap an LLM on it. And that's going to, um, that's going to make it so that it can perform this work that had been done by um, the staff and volunteers, but then it goes to these perverse places um, because of that. Yeah. So, so interesting bit of the story here Netta originally pushed back on Maxwell's claims, sort of saying that can't possibly be right. Um, but then they had to delete those statements um, uh, because they actually saw the screenshot. So Maxwell, I think, just posted text and then like brought the receipts and Neda was like, okay, fine. And then someone named Alexis Konison, who's a psychologist who specializes in treating eating disorders, recreated similar interactions and shared screenshots on Instagram. So um, here's quotes from Konison. After seeing... Uh, at Hey Shannon Maxwell, Sharon Maxwell's post about chatting with at Nita's new bot, Tessa, we decided to test her out too. There's the her again. The results speak for themselves. Imagine vulnerable people with eating disorders reaching out to a robot for support because that's all they have available and receiving responses that further promote the eating disorder. Um, like what, you know, it is sort of astonishing to me just how quickly these things fail. Like. We knew it was a bad idea. When we saw the initial reports, it's like, oh, this is a terrible idea. But I guess I sort of expected yeah. that it might take a little while before something like this surfaced. And it was dates, right? Um, just Right. And it's completely retracted it. And and, and they're like, well, or no, they did they they, they took, took it, it down, down yeah. right? They were afraid. Yeah, yeah. And then again, they denied that it was um, kind of a threat of unionization that spurred that, but that that seems uh, very <laughs> likely. Um, I don't know if we have the other thing before we move on to, and this is the Coco case yeah. that we're here, but the the people, um, one of the workers, um, I don't know if you have this readily available, Emily, but one of the workers, um, I believe Abby, um Abby Harper of of the Union Helpline Associates United um had been talking about um the unionization and how it was effectively a um uh oh we're seeing I'm seeing some of the background here of our <laughs> of, of, are you seeing stuff other than am I showing something weird? No. Okay. Oh no, no. I I saw a drop down to, to the oh, show. Okay, notes yeah. And, I'm trying I'm trying to see uh, if I can yeah, find yeah. the thing you're talking yeah. about. Oh yeah, I think it's in the chat. Yeah, it's in the chat. Okay. Um, and um, you know, in that um, um, so Abby Harper talks about this kind of union busting of what of what they're doing, um, and um, and it's and and there's a few striking things here. Um, she says the contrasts and and between um uh uh the contrast between Netta's mission and their recent retaliation makes it clear that both eating disorders and work plus workplace toxicity thrive in isolation and that solidarity is the greatest uh, tool for change um um so yeah so um you know like this and this is a point that I think that 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 we've been making a little bit here um, which is sort of like, no matter where it appears, these 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 tools, LLMs, um, Chat GPT is are are continuously this tool of 
the threat of being replaced, the threat that your job is going to disappear. Um, and it doesn't actually matter whether it does a good job or not. It just ha that threat just has to be there. Um, and so, um, yeah, I really encourage folks to, to, to read, uh, Abby's statement here and we'll put it in show notes and it's in the tech workers coalition newsletter. Yeah, right. So I think it's time to transition over to what was happening, um, with the, the suicide crisis line and Loris AI. Mm -hmm. um, and for that, I have this political article, um, and they have, it's fine. I'll accept cookies and sorry for all the ads showing up. Um, so here, um, this is the story where the suicide hotline shared data with a for-profit spinoff, and the, the headline continues, raising ethical questions. <laughs> it's like, I don't think it's just raising questions. I think it's it's just ethically terrible. Um, but to sort of bring people up to speed with what's going on, um, Crisis Text Line is one of the world's most prominent mental health support lines, a tech-driven nonprofit that uses big data and artificial intelligence to help people cope with traumas such as health harm, emotional abuse, and thoughts of suicide. And I have to say, as a layperson to this space, I mean, Crisis Text Line is definitely something I've heard of. And as you mentioned um, in the intro, frequently, if there's stories covering suicide on the radio, it'll end with a pointer to the crisis. You know, if you or someone you love, right, and then there'll be a pointer to the Crisis Text Line. Um, and I had prior to this story, not been aware that they were doing anything, big data, AI kind of thing. I thought it was a, um, let's, you know, train volunteers and make people available to people in need, sort of a really human to human setup. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, um, not used to having a microphone in front of me, <laughs> curious to hear a bit more about what the history of this situation was sort of before the Loris story broke, if there's something you want to fill us in there. Yeah, I mean, the only thing to say is, right, so this, when this story broke, and I think we should, we should really walk through it, because it's particular harms, and it's particular relationship between this kind of conflation on the one hand, and also rejection of psychological ethics in favor of data ethics, mm -hmm. is really important to watch, especially in the ways Crisis Text Line tried to speak to the crisis. Uh, before the FCC got involved. So this is also really high profile. It actually immediately resulted in policy decisions. It was really interesting um, to follow and, and very upsetting to follow. But I think one thing to say again about the hotline, the care that people rely on, you know, it's actually very strange when you think about it, right? Why would picking up the phone and talking to someone while in crisis seem like the thing to do? And yet for 70 years, it was. And then over the last 10 years or so, there's been a real turn to um, texting. Mm -hmm. And in the 90s, of course, inter-relay chat. Um, but texting, especially because it adds a new affordance, mm -hmm. which is that it makes it even more secure, especially if you're a teenager. Or also, you see this on domestic violence and domestic abuse hotlines, mm -hmm. right? Because you don't have to talk. Mm -hmm. So it keeps us, you don't have to be overheard. So many children in crisis do not have privacy, do not have privacy from their parents, right? Don't have privacy at school. And so Crisis Text Line was really doing this amazing work of taking that affordance and scaling up big time to be able to help all these children, largely children, 50% of their, of their users are under the age of 18 in crisis. But to do so, not only did they have a paid staff and a very well-funded board, they also have volunteers, but they also were always already trying to use data to make it, quote unquote, more efficient. So that was known, right, that there were going to be particular words. Uh, there are some in this in this essay as examples, right, clusters of terms that would provide crisis text line, a quote unquote, like soft diagnosis. Mm -hmm. it, we can scroll down. You'll see them if you use this, that, and Mormon, right? It means you're questioning your sexuality. If you if you use these words, oral sex mm. and Mormon, you're questioning if you're gay. Like it's really reductive. Sorry, yeah. this is moving around. Um, yeah, yeah. But that's that's that right? Or MG rubber band? There's a 99% match for substance abuse. And right, it's really highly reductive. What does 99% wow. match mean? I know. But, How are they even doing that evaluation? Well, I could imagine that they could take like a whole bunch of these conversations and in-house, you know, not selling data, but basically say, 
We're going to classify these as here's somebody who was at risk for cutting. Here's somebody who was questioning sexuality. Here's somebody who was um, calling in the context of substance abuse or texting in the context of substance abuse. And then do some statistics over words that came up in those conversations. But 99% match doesn't mean anything. It's not like, you know, when you read 99%, your, your own sort of predictive text thing says, oh, 99% 99% chance is what comes next, but they can't know that, right? right. So yeah. what, right. what does 99% match mean? Um, yeah. But I think even the next paragraph, if we can say, right, I love data mm-hmm. at Lublin, who has also described the helpline as a tech startup. <laughs> this is Gross. always the thing that in my research and my work always raises my, my hackle, spidey sense, whatever you want to call it, where things <laughs> are about to get really bad. There are yeah. certainly enough bad sort of um, tech and AI and, uh, you know, like depending on the era, right, kind of works that are trying to scale or quote unquote democratize. That's often a kind of code word for scale and profit. Right. You know, part of our democracy, of course. Um, oh, Lord. <laughs> mental health care. But when it comes from the other place, Right. This is a tech startup that happens to take its, you know, as as mental health care. I think you often see these kinds of really big problems. This isn't mental health care. It's matching. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, And I get like the most most sort of charitable reading here. There's something in here, I think, about having to um, triage texts, like who's who's going to get a response fastest. Um, And that makes sense to me as a like harm mitigation mindset um but that doesn't make sense with this like tech startup mentality like this isn't uh, me as a citizen with you know people i love who have been in crisis i don't want this to be how do we get the most out of the data for some external purpose i want how do we most effectively help the people in need and is that gathering more resources um is it making it you know even like as you were mentioning the thing about not having to talk. So if there's somebody who's in a space where they really need to be quiet to, to even reach out, then, you know, that, that sounds like a positive thing, but not like, how do we squeeze the most stuff out of this cool big pile of data? Because how dehumanizing is that to take, as you were saying before, datification, right? Take people's moments of crisis and then look at it as a, a sort of abundance of data. And I think it's really important to note that in this particular case, Lublin was doubling as the CEO of the hotline and of Loris mm-hmm. AI. And mm-hmm. so there was, it wasn't just kind of a kind of um, industry and nonprofit partnership, you know, and there are partnerships all the time, spoken and unspoken, right? It wasn't just that there was a literal double there were, you know, and so they say they had a firewall between the two roles, but we all know how that goes. So of course, right, with this joint interest, what ends up happening in this story is that crisis text line, which again is is one of the number one uh, providers of care, but therefore also collectors of data, sold the anonymized data to Loris AI to help build um, better customer service bots for Uber. Right. And yeah, that's the most ridiculous oh, thing here is that what is what is Laura's AI doing? What are they what where are they seeing the value in this data is to make more empathetic customer service bots. Right. And, and I mean the go ahead, Alex. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the whole kind of political economy of this is so uh fucked. And I mean, if you scroll a little up, I clicked through to um uh oh, oh what did I click here to get oh for it's the text that says for crisis text line an organization with financial backing from some of the Silicon Valley's biggest players. Um, I think it's a little down uh, under, under, under the, um, yeah, yeah, this one. And you click through and it's this press press release from Omidyar network. Um, And so they're able, and, and there's this quote from here of this series B funding that they got. So Omidyar is, is 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 a nonprofit as well as 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 Gates, but then in in Newmark, all these um, all these other organizations, but they also were fundraising from from VC. Um, but wait, and, Melinda Gates is, I think, the individual Melinda Gates, not the Bill and Melinda Gates oh, Foundation. Is it, oh, it is. Oh, so it is the individual as well as Reed Hoffman, 
who we've talked about, I think, before on this, um, who is one of the investors with Mustafa Suleiman and this inflection AI organization that's a, a large language model that does something that they that they haven't disclosed yet. Uh, just know that it's going to be big and exciting um, and, and, mm-hmm. and hypey. Um, but this quote um, from Lublin really strikes it for me. Um, so there's no, so, so there's no equity, no possibility of a liquidity moment. Crisis text line is a tech startup. So it makes sense for us to fundraise like one. Um, and so it's, it's this, it's this very startup VC for good type of situation, but it's following the model of basically chasing the same funding streams. Um, and that's going to lead to this monetization moment and desire to train model these these bots for uber and lyft and and whatever we have a we have a hoffman quote right after that like other tech startups crisis text line has demonstrated accelerating growth all right so crisis text line is a service that people in crisis can contact for its growth to be accelerating one of two things have to be going on um, either the number of people in crisis is stable and just more people are becoming aware of it as, as a service or more and more people are in crisis. Like the sort of the scaling mentality here is just appalling. So, sorry, I am I am uh, finding this topic distressing, not surprisingly. It is distressing. And, you know, part yeah. of it, I think, to my mind, is is that. It's distressing because it's a moment where you really can see the kind of cannibalization of care to escort profit uh, in this area. And then what becomes the problem, right? For so many who have come to rely on this form, but also because it's the people who are in distress who are going to use it and people who can't and don't tend to afford one-to-one therapy in a shrink's office. Right, that it's really putting the most vulnerable already to capture and control, and the most vulnerable in mental health crisis at the whims of both systems. And there's something super upsetting to me about that. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a lot of the, and just to note a few of these things, I mean, this is Hannah, you had mentioned FCC's letter on this after three days after Politico's reporting. Um, uh, the FCC commissioner um, basically said, "You need to stop. <laughs> you need to stop this. You need to stop selling these data to Laura South AI." Instructed um, Lena Khan um, to take action on on this, um, and um, there was an intent. I mean, this was, and I think some of the discourse at the time. This was. Um, this is early last year had been, uh, you know, people are saying, you know, to get the FCC to act on this was, you know, you really have to have incredibly messed up um, to, to, to have done this. The FCC um, typically doesn't take um, action like this. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Alex, is this you know, FCC as, as or FTC? Both. Okay. So the F- FCC so the so Commissioner Carr on the FCC had sent a letter, yeah. and then also instructed um, under the FTC's um, aegis um, what would what could be regulated as an enforcement action under the FTC's domain. So yeah, yeah. all right. Oh. Uh, shall we? So- Shall we move to Shall we move to hell? Well, we've got we got fifteen minutes. minutes but I feel like one one important topic that we haven't hit is um, how this connects with the carceral system, and I know that Hannah has yeah. some things to say about that. So I want to just sort of open that topic, and then we can move to hell. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Emily. And you know, it is it is hell itself. So I'm going to add this to the chat. I don't know if you mind, but I've been working with folks at the Trans Lifeline for the last I don't know now over a year. Um, because part of what's happened in the wider quote unquote ecosystem of hotlines is that there's been this major shift taking place, which is that all, um, affiliated hotlines in the United States have now moved to a new number, 988. Mm-hmm. But 988 also makes use of not AI, but datafication to geolocate callers down to their address level. And so- wow. Wow. 
one thing that happens, and, and by the way, Crisis Text Line does this too, before the mandate, right? Um, many hotlines, but not all, call the police to the homes of their callers or to the location of their callers to perform quote unquote wellness checks. And you know we're speaking in a U.S. context here, where the racialization of police violence is something that I hope everyone takes really seriously and knows a great deal about, especially in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, but also before. And so these hotlines have been call, you know, calling uh, police to do wellness checks, and of course, um, they often end in in violence and in fatality, especially because. If you think about it really fully, people who call suicide hotlines often are armed not to harm others, but to harm themselves. Yeah. Mm. And so one thing that we've seen with National Suicide Prevention Lifeline calls where they're doing these, quote unquote, active rescues, that's what they call them, is that those calls are to, where police and other emergency services go to the homes of their callers are often uh, due to glitches. So if you hang up it happens. But also if your if your call drops, it happens. Mm. And so there are stories and story after story of people having the police show up to their place of work or to the school or to their home when they thought they were just having a call because they were feeling really blue or really down or in crisis. And now, in fact, they're being hospitalized or they're interacting with the police, which can be traumatic or it can already be reminiscent of earlier traumas with the police and so on. And so there's this really great link, you know, I think that was under featured in the reporting on what happened with Crisis Text Line, which is that it isn't just about selling the data. That's bad. But there's this whole other component to what datafication of hotlines do. Right. And so one thing I really stress in my research is that the whole history of the suicide hotline was a third alternative to calling the police and calling the psychiatrist. It was neither mm -hmm. carceral nor was it psychiatric. And that was really important to its users, including and especially its queer community, which was one of its very first adopters. Mm -hmm. Right. This is a moment where police had the kind of recompense to carry out the quote unquote cures of psychiatry, which included all the way up to electroshock therapy and lobotomization, as well as um, psychiatric holds. We see versions of this in our present and all of the metrics, which are all have to do with the kind of datification of predicting suicide are bunk. And we know that. Mm -hmm. And yet they're being deployed now at mass scale in the United States. So the reason I wanted you to pull up this article is, of course, if folks are interested, this, this is one that really lays out both the technological side and the social side. But if you scroll to its bottom, we really worked with the editors at Slate to give a list of resources that, right, we and we have the same uh, right, we're, we say if you're concerned about calling a crisis line that uses police intervention, consider reaching out to. And then there are five different mm -hmm. sources. And this was a whole question with our editor. We didn't want to list mm -hmm. the very two places we are critiquing alone, mm -hmm. saying like these are great places to call when indeed we have deep reservations about the kinds of secondary dangers they introduce into everyday life. That is incredibly valuable information, yeah. and I That's super I helpful. didn't know this. Um, I'm I'm learning it from you now. Um, I guess I had always assumed that these things were confidential, and alerting the police to your location is the antithesis of confidential. You know, yeah, and that, it really breaks yeah. my heart because you know often people think which I totally understand. Well, the reason the hotline used to be confidential is because you couldn't track callers. Well, indeed, you could. Mm. People used to hand trace telephone wire. Mm. The police used to hand trace telephone wire, but hotlines refused it. Um, this is a little bit more on the longer history, if you're interested, not the contemporary um, of, of why you would want to have a hotline free of the carceral. Um, and then Yana and I collaborated on this kind of contemporary op-ed about why Trans Lifeline refuses to do so and what mm -hmm. are the kinds of consequences of in the wider hotline um, ecosystem, again, of deploying these carceral techniques. Um, and I just I feel like it's really important to draw folks attention to it, especially if people are feeling um you know, as many people are in crisis or are needing a place to talk, that it is unfortunately really important to think about how and where and why you want to do that talking now. Yeah. Wow. 
the show. I appreciate I appreciate that. And I, you know, I know that there's been efforts and one of the things you link to at the end is efforts like MH First that come that's in Oakland in the East Bay that is um, organized by the Anti-Police um, Terror Project um, and the effort there as having this third way and this alternative uh, providing, um, you know, a, a non-police intervention um, for mental health crises. Um, and, you know, we can just imagine how the combination of slapping an LLM on it, but then also using this geolocation is just going to exacerbate in the sake of scale and um, give more money, you know, probably make an argument and make it easier for uh, law enforcement to then um, say, well, we need more money to scale this because look at all these things that we're serving, you know, quote unquote, serving with large language models. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So with that, let's transition to hell. And Alex, your prompt this time is imagine this is 10 years from now and there's like a docu-play, so theater production, um, and you are the um, a seller of an AI hype service. And you are telling the audience why it's so important to scale the hype. Wait, wait, okay, For hold our on. transition Let me to AI hell, yeah. <laughs> First off, let me put let me put the hell screen on. <laughs> second off, second off. So you're saying, am I selling the hype or selling a hype machine? You're a hype machine that will scale the hype. That will scale the hype. Yeah, because you're telling because this is like it's all about how it's all about scale. Scale is important, and you're going to tell us why we need more and more hype. We need the hype to scale. This is this is this is incredibly meta. So all I'm going to say is, I'm going to say, boy, you know how much hype you can slam into this bad boy, and it's just that meme format. So excellent. Yeah. There all right. We go. Thank you. There we go. All right. <laughs> okay. So we've got a few things here. The city of Yokosuka adopts ChatGPT after favorable trial results. Um, so in Yokosuka, Kanagawa Prefecture. Um, uh, the city has officially adopted artificial intelligence chatbot ChatGPT in administrative operations Monday after a one-month trial showed it helped improve work efficiency and shorten business hours. So apparently they're using it to reduce clerical work. And what I loved about this is if ChatGPT use is continued, working hours can be reduced by at least about 10 minutes a day. <laughs> I didn't see this 10, 10 minutes. Incredible. Yeah. Incredibly. <laughs> 10 minutes that you can use to, yeah. yeah. Um, also the reporting here, with, it says the city's authority was the nation's first local government to start trial use of generative AI, which is driven by a machine learning model that works much like the human brain. Oh dear. <laughs> Japan times, you can do better um, than that. Yeah, yeah come on All now. right, next, it's AI hell, we're going fast. Um, so Alex, you wanna take this one? <laughs> So this is a tweet by Jana G. Noel, who says, um, um, so is who is quote quote tweeting someone saying, um, who Maria um Tarod saying, this is so freaking dangerous. We're talking about software evaluating submissions for grammar, which can be boiled down to software eliminating submissions based on voice. And so this is this part of Publishers um, Weekly or somebody. So this is part of published. Yeah. Okay, so. Yeah. Oh wow. So this is so this is um a publisher effectively <laughs> um assessing whether a book is well written. Um great. So this is using, yeah. So this is using chat GPT telling you whether you know we should publish something. Yeah, whether should we consider publication? Uh, so we're gonna separate the wheat from the yeah. chaff in the highlight here. Yeah, yeah. So so um, so Jana is saying, so on top of the other indignities of querying now, we'll have to work on any work that has a non-mainstream voice for sale rejected out of hand on top of our words being used to strengthen LLMs as the price of admission. A better use for AI would be for actually answering all queries, um, which, you know, if, you know, if you're actually a, a publisher saying that, you know, thanks for this, um, but you don't actually get to read the text. Um, so using anything that might not be considered uh, proper English um, 
that you know is going to exclude a lot of marginalized voices um any kind of um uh, uh mixed text or using of language that is um you know bilingual um yeah, yeah. just fresh hell fresh all around, around there yep. Um, and this and this is the article about it. Sorry, I just could have brought this up. So AI is about to turn book oh, publishing yeah, yeah. upside down. No, thank you. Okay, here's the update on the lawyer who used ChatGPT to um, find citations for precedent in this case he was he was working on. And are, oh, I swear, yes. I'm bringing this one to my undergrads in the fall. Yeah. I swear, this is going to be my example. Like, <laughs> so are you following the story? Do you know? So he's um, right. So this is this is a lawyer who um, lawyer for a plaintiff. Um, in a case between like a person and a, well, hold on. Yeah. Person in an airline, person got injured by the cart coming down the aisle, wanted to sue. Airline says statute of limitations has um, expired. Uh, person's lawyer says, nah, here's some precedent. Turns out precedent came from chat GPT, totally fake. Um, and the judge was not amused um, and said, okay, tell me why I shouldn't be censoring you. And apparently, um, the lawyer is actually facing some consequences. So good on the legal system for having some self-regulation here and not falling for just completely made up BS. Um, and to listeners, um, if you missed it, we had a wonderful episode um, a little ways back with uh, Kendra Albert, who I always want to call Kendra Sarah because of their handle. Same. <laughs> <laughs> um, who yeah. uh, dug into sort of what's going on with uh, uh, generative so-called generative AI and legal applications. And and Kendra, they had a great follow-up thread on this on um on Mastodon. We could we yeah. could follow up and put this in, in show. Absolutely notes. put that. Yes. They've they've been following this with glee and humor. Um yeah. okay. JP Morgan's plans mm. for a chat GPT like investment service are just part of its larger AI ambitions. <laughs> oh my gosh, what's I didn't see this. What is this yeah. about? So the so Chat GPT, so GPT Morgan Chase is developing a Chat GPT like service to provide investment advice to customers. Amazing. Um, which found that the financial services company has applied to trademark a product called Index GPT. Ah, the the filing said Index GPT will tap quote cloud computing software using artificial intelligence, just just filler words all around. Um unquote for quote analyzing and selecting securities tailored to customers needs and then i'm really annoyed because they don't end the quote yeah. here so so just... yeah typographic irritation and it's just like yeah i mean compared to putting a chatbot in the loop when people are experiencing mental health crises i care a little bit less about jp morgan chase's customers getting so-called financial advice from a large language model um, but it still seems like a really terrible idea and another one that's going to just like fall on its face real flat, real fast. Like, and Because it's the people who are able to invest less and have less money to begin with who are going to get shunted to this service. And so, of course, it's only going to increase economic inequality. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's right there. Yeah, true. Yeah. And that's the thing is that Chase, unfortunately, a Chase customer, but they have this stuff right in there um in their online banking interface so if you can't get that bespoke advice it's another incident incident of chatbots for for the pores and and real humans for everybody yeah. else all right let's do one last one i forget what this one is oh oh yeah yeah oh this so this one's the this instructor mm -hmm. who at texas a&m um who sent an email accusing his entire um class of using chat g TP. So not chat GPT, but GTP. Um, and what he did was copied and pasted all the responses in chat GPT and asked them if they use the tool to generate the content. Um, and yeah. How many did he fail? Everybody? He failed, oh, I think, a bunch of people. Yeah, and a bunch of these people were graduating seniors who have had their diplomas held up yeah. because this professor doesn't understand how the technology works and what it's actually doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> all right. So with that, uh, let, let me, hold on, let me take us out of hell. All right. <laughs> <laughs> with that, 
Thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, your expertise is amazing um, and exactly what was needed for this topic. I learned so much. I'm sure the audience did too. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. And Alex, I hope to see you around in town. Yeah. Yeah, see you around. Uh, that's it for this week. Our theme song was by Toby Menon, production by Christy Taylor. And thanks as always to the Distributed AI Research Institute. If you like this show, you can support us by donating to DARE at DARE Institute, DARE-Institute.org. That's D-A-I-R Institute.org. Find us in all our past episodes, which number 12, this was number 13, on PeerTube and wherever you get your podcasts. You can watch and comment on the show while it's happening live on our Twitch stream. That's twitch.tv slash dare underscore institute. Again, that's D-A-I-R underscore institute. I'm Emily M. Bender. And I'm Alex Hanna. Stay out of AI hell, y'all.